Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to Episode 4, Once Upon a Canvas Sky. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Max Hunt about his maternal grandfather, artist and filmmaker, Ree Redifer. Welcome to the show, Max, and thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Okay, I want to start off by just asking a few questions about your grandfather's background. Where and when was he born? And, you know, basically, where did he grow up? Well, he was born in South Bend, Indiana, which is a small little, well, now post-industrial, but at the time was kind of a burgeoning industrial town in uh, northern Indiana. It's where Notre Dame University is uh, located. And he was born in 1933, so just in a the heyday of the Great Depression. Lucky for him. Yes. Uh, maybe unlucky, I guess you could say. But they were they lived right outside of the town prop. You know, they had chickens, kind of a hard scrabble farm, he used to call it. It was very much your typical Midwestern Depression experience. He was a twin. He was him and his brother Rex were the last of six children. They had all that fun on top of everything going on socially and economically in the country at the time. Wow. Uh, Do you know if were they heavily impacted by the Great Depression or did were they self-sufficient with the food that they were able to produce on the farm? Do you know about that at all, Max? They were impacted pretty hard. Spoken with his older sister, Lorraine, who is actually still alive. She lives in Thomasville, Georgia, currently. From what I've gathered from her and my own research, they were kind of typical middle-class family in the late 20s. Things were going okay. My great-grandfather, he was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He did a lot of radio work. He was a broadcaster for Notre Dame's football game. He was kind of, he ran an electronics store that specialized in radios, which were the big thing back then. And so things were pretty good. Lorraine had told me they had a car. They had, they were not rich by any means, but they were doing pretty well for themselves up until the depression hit. My great grandfather lost his job, as did many people during that time. And things got pretty hard pretty quickly. It really kind of turned into a bit of a depression, maybe not a dust bowl, but not far off from that. The farm became the main means of making money to varying success. And you know, his father kind of bounced around finding whatever work he could. Now, it was complicated when Ree's mother passed away um, when he was three. Him and mm. Rex were three at that time. And that was probably one of the single biggest, if not the single biggest impact on his early life. The the loss of his mother was was huge for the whole family and everybody had their own way of dealing with it. But being so young, him and uh, his twin brothers have never quite seemed to reconcile themselves to that. It was something that showed up in his artwork a lot, in his writing a lot. It was kind of a constant chase from him from then on, try to find this missing mother. Almost, if if you've ever read William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, it's very similar to that in in the sentiment of it from everything I gathered from him. Her name was Oliva Redifer. I've been, we've been to her grave. It's a very little thing in South Bend. She kind of loomed over his life. She was kind of this ghost that was in the corner to the point where even his grandchildren, me included, we knew of her. We knew that this was an important thing. And while we didn't know very many particulars, her presence was very much with us. 
throughout our childhood. I think I don't think that was something he could ever shake. And so that really, on top of the economic hardship, really impacted him really had a profound influence on his life, for good or for ill. Definitely. What a challenge for his father for to have six children and basically trying to raise them on his own and during a depression. Absolutely. It was a struggle, and his father and him did not get along very well. He was, you know, friendly enough with his father, but his father was the same in a lot of ways, if that makes any sense. He was a hard man. My great-grandfather, he was kind of demanding. He was very practical. He had lost his parents at a very young age and had grown up basically an orphan being taken care of by various relatives. So there wasn't a lot of sympathy, I guess, in the way that we would maybe approach it in the modern age. It made it hard for a young child to really understand. And father remarried very quickly, actually. Kind of the romantic literary, he went off to Chicago and came back with a wife. <laughs> Several months after my great-grandmother had passed away, her name was Violet, the stepmother. She was an intense woman from what I've gathered, but one thing I can say for her, and I don't know much about her life, she was very supportive of my grandfather Reed's early interest in visual art. She, more than anybody, besides maybe his sister Lorraine, was the main kind of booster, I guess you could say, of his talent. And she recognized it very early and encouraged him in that in that direction as much as she could. She could also be very hard. His siblings have varying takes on her. She wasn't always pleasant to be around and could be a bit abusive at times, but never towards my grandfather. She seemed, seemed to single him out as her favorite pretty early on. And you know, whether what impact that had, I guess you could argue that there were a lot of facets of that, but it, it certainly helped him artistically, I think, as far as driving him forward into something that he seriously considered devoting his life to. So, okay, so now he's growing up in this household and he's getting a bit older. How long did he stay in Indiana? Uh, what was that process? Until he graduated high school, he was kind of grew up in, to, to take his word for it, a bit of an idyllic kind of rural middle America world running around the field in the prairie. A lot of memories of talking with relatives and distant cousins and grandparents. It comes through in his writing a lot, especially. He wrote quite extensively about his impressions as a child, um, whether it be the circumstance of his mother's death and how how does a young, a young child process that. Stories of relatives who would visit and talk about settling the West. I mean, the Redifer family goes back to pre-Revolutionary War times. As far as I've been able to research, the first Redifer showed up in Philadelphia about 1700. They were here for the Revolutionary War, fought on both sides of that, slowly made their way across the country in the ensuing decades, all the way out to Oregon and California. And then when the family got there, it kind of turned back around again, came back east. So I kind of like to joke and say that you can bit and find a redifer anywhere you go around the country. <laughs> we're, we're scattered across plains, the prairies, the mountain, east coast, cities, the suburbs. They're, they're kind of everywhere. It's, it's very much it's kind of what we think of when we think of the American past. It was a family 
going westward and kind of blowing new frontiers. One thing that's always remained pretty strong in that family is the sense of wanderlust, something that just seems to be prevalent from generation to generation. So he grew up, you know, in this very, you know, it was the Depression and then the war years, um, which also profoundly impacted his family. His three oldest siblings fought in World War II, while my grandfather himself was too young to have participated really in the World War II effort. He was surrounded by these stories. I mean, it, it was, you know, much as it was nationally, it was kind of the obsession of the time, you know, you waited to hear what the news was. He waited for the reports of who had been killed, who had been wounded, who was missing. And I think for a young, an adolescent boy growing up, that in addition to the passing of his mother and the effects that the depression and that you know, level of poverty left on him really kind of impacted both his, his outlook on life and just the imagination. You know, he was a very imaginative child from what I've been told from everybody who knew him. And he writes extensively about hearing, you know, the names of these far off places, kind of wondering where is that and looking up at the big sky overhead, wondering how far away till you get to Tokyo, how far away till you get to Normandy. These were questions that for somebody in the 1940s growing up, he didn't, you know, that wasn't a familiar. Uh, he was very much of that generation, really, really kind of sparked his imagination along with all these stories of the past of settlers and wars with the Native American tribes, civil war, all these things kind of blended together to form this kind of mystical tapestry that infatuated him for the rest of his life. Wow. Now, I understand also he served in the military himself, correct? Yes. He was in the Korean War, um, not directly. He joined the Air Force after graduating high school. He spent a little bit of time at the John McCready School of Art in New Orleans, where his sister Lorraine had settled after World War II with her her husband. He didn't take to New Orleans very well. I think it was a little overwhelming for him having come, as he would call it, you know, being a hayseed from rural Indiana. The city kind of shocked his system a little bit, his personality to it. Just wasn't a great fit. He talked fondly of it in retrospect later in his life, but according to Lorraine and others I've spoken with, New Orleans taught him a lot, but it wasn't the right atmosphere for him at that time. Spent, I believe, a little over a year down there when the Korean War came about. He enlisted. His brother was also in the Air Force. And funny story, they uh, they used to get a great kick out of him. They looked so much alike that they would at times swap <laughs> positions. And so Ree would pretend to be Rex and Rex would pretend to be Ree when they went on leave or saw each other just to see how long it would take their commanding officers, service members to discover it wasn't the right twin that they were talking to. <laughs> and from what I've gathered, they never got caught. It's pretty funny when you think about it. Uh, um, but yeah. that's how similar they were. Not only complemented each other quite well, but yes, he was um, actually an air traffic controller in the Korean War. He did training flight, but because of his eyesight, he was <laughs> blind as a bat for most of his life. They wouldn't let him fly. This was before LASIK and corrective lenses. He had to wear glasses. You weren't going to get active duty flying missions. So he uh, was stationed in Japan during the Korean War. And that was probably a big influencer, spending time in Japan. And he was there for, I believe, a little over two years. And again, kind of similar to his experience in New Orleans, here you have this Midwestern boy who had hardly ever left prior to the war and has moved down to New Orleans. 
really never been out of that part of the country. And then suddenly he's in a completely different culture that's reconciling with its own um, reconstruction after the devastation of World War II. And he wrote a lot about that, about being this stranger in a strange land and watching an entire civilization kind of put the pieces back together after this huge reckoning on it. And being an outsider, but being kind of directly in, involved in that rebuild, I think really shaped a lot. He read a lot there too. I think the isolation of being so far from home turned him inward and he was a vociferous reader. He read everything he could get his hands on, especially when it came to American literature. And I think that really having that time where he was, days were pretty much laid out for him and he knew what he was going to do 10.30 in the morning at 7.30 at night. He turned inward and really devoted himself to studies and kind of made himself a self-educated man, learned a lot about his own country. I think being outside of America really drove him to look at the history of his own country and just question where he came from and what were the values, what was the history, what was the lessons to be drawn from that place while he had the luxury of being kind of outside of that experience, you know, the American experience being over in Japan. That really drove him forward to his artwork. And that's mm-hmm. where the Air Force sponsored his first art show in Tokyo. That's also where my grandfather first came along, came across Andrew Wyeth, who would play an invaluable role in his development as an artist. Wow, that's crazy. It's, this is really good background as far as what inspired your grandfather's works to think about the exposure he had to family members who were in faraway places and then when he went to Japan he actually was in a faraway place and then it made him reflect back on home at that time so this is really good background for what inspired your grandfather and his work now one of the things that I've read was that your grandfather ended up spending most of his life in Chad's Ford Pennsylvania how did he end up there from Indiana Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, while he was in Japan, he attended a traveling art show, art exhibit that was there. And it was an exhibit on watercolor featuring American watercolorists. And there were a couple Andrew Wyeth paintings in the exhibit. It was his first time he had ever seen any of Andrew Wyeth's work, so he was kind of taken with that. And he actually sat down and wrote a letter to him, kind of being a romantic young man, lonely and kind of out of his element. He thought he would write Mr. Wyeth a letter. And he was astounded that this famous artist, who at that time was kind of really coming into his own prominence in the American art world and internationally, wrote him back a handwritten letter saying, hey, if you're ever in the Chadsford area, this is where I live, come pay me a visit. And so my grandfather, once he was out of the Air Force, he returned to the United States. And he had actually, through the GI Bill, been offered scholarships at several East Coast schools for his art and had decided at that point to accept scholarship to Brown University and was on his way there and left Indiana after a short day and was going to hitchhike his way out to Brown and start his education. And he decided, well, while I'm on this little road trip, let me swing through Chad's Ford. I'm going to go visit Andrew Wyeth, introduce myself. I remember him telling me this when I was younger. You know, he used to take me on these long car rides and we'd just go out into the fields and the horse farms that kind of surround the Chadsford area to this day and he would just you know talk to me and just tell me about different things different experiences while we drove along he loved to do that he I remember him telling me about the first time he'd been dropped off and he kind of came over this one rise in the hill where you could kind of see Chadsford when he first arrived there it was kind of this idyllic little 
farming community. It had a background with a lot of different artists had settled there, Howard Pyle, the Wyatt. So it had this reputation as a bit of an artist enclave. But he told me about coming over this hill and just seeing this valley laid out before him. And it was autumn. The trees were beautiful. Everything was kind of just this picturesque rolling hills and farmland. And something about that really struck a chord in his heart. And he was a lover of Thoreau for American literature, drew him in. And I think he saw the living manifestation in Chad's Ford of these things that he had dreamed of as a boy and as a young man, this American rural bucolic beauty that had been that echoed in his mind for so long was kind of made manifest in this beautiful area. And also kind of the, the violent undertones that really do flow through a lot of American history and a varied unsettled history for such a short time you know, in the span of world history. So it's the place where the Brandy, the Battle of the Brandywine was fought. The Revolutionary War was a pretty horrible battle um, for those days. A lot of a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship, especially for the American soldiers. And so I think just that blend of this kind of unsettled, say, raw American history against the backdrop of such a beautiful natural surrounding really drew him in. And then once he got there, he managed to speak with Andrew Wyeth and sat with him. And I remember him telling me that Mr. Wyeth and him were talking about art and art theory and philosophy. And Mr. Wyeth set a matchbox on the table that they were sitting at. And he looked at my grandfather and said, if you cannot make this the most interesting thing in the world, then you have no business being an artist. And that stuck with him for the rest of his life, just this kind of command to see the beauty and see the evocative nature of what most people would consider ordinary or plain, to see a small object or a tree or you know, the, the way the light hits you know, the water at a certain time of day and to extrapolate that out, to really make that something more than what you were just seeing without having to gussy it up, without making it fantastical, just to take the thing at hand and to draw the viewer in. And so I think all of that combined really made Chad's Ford his home. It was a place that he felt he belonged for somebody who, you know, never quite felt like he belonged in a lot of his circumstances. Coming across that something, a place like that, almost by accident, really is a special thing for him. And he never left where he, he would go on trips. But aside from that, Chad's Ford was his home for the rest of his natural life. Wow, now, let's see. I see here that I've done a little research on your grandfather myself, and I see that a lot of the subject matter for his paintings were historical, which uh, makes yeah. sense based on what you've told me. But I noticed that Abraham Lincoln and World <laughs> yeah. War One airplanes and the Civil War in general seemed to be his major topics within his paintings. Why was he so drawn to those things? Well, Lincoln was his hero, I think, aside from maybe Henry David Thoreau. Lincoln was kind of his guy. I think my grandfather, through those series of portraits, was trying to capture the various facets of this and to celebrate them to some extent and recognize them, but also to look what was what made this person tick. Why has he become what he's become in the modern day? You know, and where where does the myth end and where does the man begin and vice versa and together? So I think that was a lot of that was the draw for him as far as Lincoln went. As far as World War One goes, that was also very personal for him. He always loved flying. He loved airplanes. When I was a kid, he would take us cousins out to this little local airfield that was right outside of Chad's Ford and later Kenneth Square, which is near Chad's Ford in southeastern Pennsylvania. We would just go watch the planes take off and land. He liked to talk to the pilots. He had this love for flying. He grew up in the era of the barnstormers, you know, especially during the Depression, people flying into town and giving rides to people um, for a buck or two a shot. And just really this Americana that I think 
drew him as somebody who grew up in the midst of rural America that was woven so deeply into the identity of that generation that he I think it echoed in him. And I think he saw this poetry and this beauty of man being among the birds. A lot of it was very personal for him in the sense that his, uh, his oldest brother, Burley, who had served in World War II as a pilot, passed away pretty soon after World War II, I believe 1947, was involved in a private plane crash. It didn't have anything to do with the war per se. But I think that, especially his illustrations in one of the books, Once Upon a Canvas Sky, that he published, were really kind of a, a tribute to his brother in a tangential way. It was a tribute to the men who gotten those those contraptions, especially early on in World War One, knowing full well that you know that their likelihood that they were going to perish in battle or just by accident was more likely than not. If you made it a couple months, you were considered an old timer at that point, just because it, you know it was new technology and young men were flying over foreign you know lands that hit they'd never even really probably thought about before the war in these newfangled contraptions <laughs> and I think there was just a kind of a daredevil aspect to that that really excited him and it kind of harkened back to a time of innocence that I think really drew him I know there's a quote of his that I have I think it illustrates that particular why he was driven to paint Lincoln and the Civil War and airplanes and it's by an author, J.L. Carr, and the quote is, we can ask and ask, but can never get back what once seemed ours forever. My grandfather wrote his own little addendum to that, and he said, many times in a wry sort of way, I think of painting as a form of that asking, an attempt to evoke the fleeting moments of the life we have lived. Those moments can never be defined, they can only be hinted at for, which once seemed ours forever was our innocent wonder. Perhaps a crow at dusk, a tree in winter, magnolias in the evening, or even a moment of tragedy in the skies over Passchendaele in 1917 compelling moments and the feelings they evoke. And I tried to touch upon those feelings. And so that, I think he really summed up what he was after pretty well. It's these moments, it's these intense moments of feeling in time that kind of get obscured almost by our, the way we romanticize and lionize them in the aftermath. There's very little romantic about flying over enemy territory in a plane that you're not sure is going to make it at the time. And so I think he was very drawn to the kind of the duality of those two things, how, how we view it and how it was viewed in the moment by the person doing it. And whether it was Lincoln or these fighter pilots or soldiers in the Civil War, there's another good one as far as the same ideas here's something that we look at and it's almost become unreal to us it's become so monolithic to modern society is you know we learn the names and we learn the battles but seldom do we stop and think about the actual experience of those people who were fighting in that you know regardless of the side that they were on or what they were fighting for I mean there was countless motivations for it and you really as far as the individual soldier goes you seldom hear about their experiences and even when you do it's always a looking back it's shrouded in the mist of time and memory and I think for him it was get to the heart of what it was that these people were experiencing in that moment the good the bad and the ugly and just how how visceral and how alive and real that can be even 100 plus years later and that's now I, I want to say that you mentioned a, a bit ago the, the actually the name of the podcast once upon a canvas sky I have seen that book and there's something <laughs> haunting about the paintings the illustrations there's something haunting about the work that he does that really draws in a lot of your emotion. And you feel like there's, it's about heroes, but it's about great cost 
but there's something gallant about it at the same time. And something happy mm. and sad all, all wrapped up in one. But I'm not very good at explaining art or anything like that. I, I don't even pretend to be able to know those things. But there is something about his work, some of those paintings that really struck me more than just looking at a painting of an airplane or something like that. And I think you really hit the nail on the head right there. Um, that was a pretty good description of it, <laughs> honestly, in my opinion. There really is, I think, and that's what he was trying to accomplish in his visual work and in his written work and everything else that he put his mind towards was how to capture both of those things at the same time, how to get past sentiment. He was very, he told me at least, and other people that he taught and mentored, you know, sentiment has its place. It's very nice and it's very nice to have sentimental feelings. It's a natural thing, but you can't get caught up in sentiment if you're going to do something artistic. You're going to embark on an artistic endeavor, he said to many. Like sentiment is for Hallmark cards and for when you're feeling feeling nostalgic on a you know, Sunday afternoon and you're sitting around talking over things with people. But he said, when you're going through it, he said, the sentiment's only going to cloud your vision. He said, you got to kind of push that aside. And I think in those, in the illustrations for Once Upon a Canvas Guy, which won an award, the name of the award escapes me at the moment. He was, it was an award-winning book. It was very limited edition. Like I said, it was kind of a, a bit of a personal passion project for him. I think to memorialize his brother, I believe it's even dedicated to his brother. Early. But it was really, you know, in the, the visual representations of what he was writing about in that book, he tried to represent just how surreal that experience was for these, these young men. I mean, we're talking about 18, 19 year old kids and these planes that have barely been around. When you think about the Wright brothers, you're talking less than 50 years. Humans have even been flying what we would consider an airplane. These are made of canvas. This is canvas and balsa wood, essentially. <laughs> you know, very lightweight materials that were great for getting airborne, not so great for holding up under duress or under enemy fire. And so you have canvas paired with machine guns flying hundreds of thousands of feet over the sky trying to take each other out and trying to maneuver around each other and to avoid fire from the ground. And I think in these visual representations that he's presenting to people, you really see that, you know, whether it's a dash of gray underneath a mostly yellow background, whether it's just, you know, a hint of red on the tail. There's a one painting that he did of the infamous Red Baron, and you really, you barely see the figure of the Baron. It's a little blip. It's his plane, a trifocker, that a kind of iconic three-wing monstrosity what you would look at now you're like how could that ever even get up in the air but this was cutting edge technology of the time and really it looks like this hulking menacing type of contraption it's, it's almost like a, it's eerie it's a thing of nightmares really and I think he was trying to evoke that just you know what kind of terror these young American and British pilots and French pilots felt when they would come across that in the sky and see that bearing down on them and just the fear and the you know, realizing that oh this is this is the infamous Baron who's going to come and shoot me down. And I really think that was what he was going. He wanted to put a visual to those emotions that we find so hard to express, even harder to remember. So, so your grandfather put so much of himself and these emotions onto the canvas. But I also know that he had an interest in and did work with film and actually did some stage work. So how did they intersect yeah. with his painting? Could you give us an idea how that happened? 
Absolutely. He was always interested in writing. It's kind of funny. I told you he was an identical twin. Well, my grandfather ended up being an artist who wrote, quote unquote, and his twin brother, Rex, was an award-winning journalist for the Indianapolis Star for decades and a poet. And he also did caricatures and cartoons and illustrations. So the joke in the family was that Re, my grandfather, was the artist who wrote and Rex was the writer who drew. <laughs> and so again, they kind of complimented each other and and uh, well, one made a career, the other one did for fun. What one did for fun, the other one did for a career. So it was kind of this back and forth. My grandfather was quite quite a productive writer. He did a lot of poetry, a lot of prose. Now, a lot of it never got finished. He's kind of bounced all over the place at times. And he would be the first to admit discipline was never his strong suit. And whimsy, which I think attracted him very much to Andrew Wyeth's work, that that's just a very prevalent thing in a lot of the Wyeth's work, whether it's Andrew or NC. Also, you get to the serious, raw, sometimes painful emotions and feelings that are kind of hide underneath the whimsy. And a lot of that comes through in his writing. He was made several films that he was a screenwriter for, and he acted in a couple of them as well. <laughs> Occasional actor, he liked to call himself. But him and his friend Dennis McCoy, who was uh, Andrew Wyeth's nephew, he was Ann Wyeth's son, made several, I guess you can call them art house movies, a couple feature-length films as well. One called The Last Rebel with uh, Joe Namath, which my grandfather and Dennis both have described as a terrible film. <laughs> Self-admitted <laughs> terrible. Very much the kind of movie you see come on at two o'clock in the morning when there's nothing else on or nothing else to do. <laughs> but in Joe Namath, you know, the famous football uh, star was in it. It was a spaghetti western that they filmed in Italy. So he got to go to Italy and got that experience. As far as his more serious work goes in film, he made several short films which won some acclaim. The Island Funeral, which is a black and white silent film. It's beautiful. It's about it's about a funeral, but it starts out, it's kind of a journey through the past. And a lot of my grandfather's visual work um, outside of you know, painting is, is concerned with the past, how we interact with it how it influences our day-to-day -day life. So the island funeral starts out with a very old antique horse-drawn carriage on the back of a tow truck. The first part of the movie is focused on the tow truck driver driving down the road. He's kind of driving haphazardly. He's very much the stereotypical vision of a tow truck driver. And then the carriage is unloaded and it's put on a boat and they sail out to this island off the coast of Maine. And as the film progresses, you're slowly realizing that you're being drawn back into time with this funeral carriage. So you go from the modern diesel engine to this boat, this little steamer, and then you're on the, on the island and the carriage is just going down these dirt roads. By the time they, run, they wind up at the uh, cemetery for the funeral itself, you feel like you've been transported back in time. And he does that a lot. Another uh, short film that he made was uh, called 1864. That's related to the Civil War. And that won an award, I believe, it wasn't called Sundance then, but it was, a, it was kind of a prototypical Sundance film festival before that really took off. And I believe it was, it might have been nominated for an Academy Award. I know one of his films was up for an Academy Award. It didn't win, but they got nominated. I believe it was 1864. And then his play was called The Prairie. And that's much more about my grandfather's uh, personal past. It's a kind of experimental play that explains these echoes of the past. It's family sitting around 
on the porch in the evenings and they're going over the history and telling stories and just really kind of reimagining where they've been, where their ancestors have been, where their footsteps have taken them. And there's a quote that I have that's from the prairie that I thought kind of illustrated that and a lot of what he's uh, he was trying to get at with his written work really well. And it's uh called yes i remember those summer nights out in the yard the smell of lilac the feel of the firefly jars and the blue murmur of voices and during that moment all that is remembered joins and lives the old and the young the present and the past the living and the dead and leaving us great god with only this knowing that this earth this time this life are stranger than a dream and I think that really sums it up. That's the way he, he viewed a lot of Nuggles. What he was trying to convey is just how dreamlike and how surreal our, our memories and our past are and how they intersect, kind of guide us forward, sometimes without us even knowing it. Wow, it sounds like no experience was ever wasted. On your <laughs> no, certainly not. Your grandfather. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just want to ask a couple quick questions. One is all this creativity and all this work and all this thinking and imagining and all that went into the passion that your grandfather had toward his work. There were other people in his life that he had a family. I know he was married. He had three daughters, your mom being one of them. What role did his family play? You mentioned about his brothers and his sister a little bit and his dad and his mom, but what role did his family, later family, have in his work? They were his foundation, truly. I mean, uh, yes, as you said, from his early life, his sister Lorraine was a driving kind of force and inspiring him to follow his dreams. She was his de facto mother for um, a lot of his childhood, just being the oldest girl and a family of six with little ones with no mother to take care of. Lorraine really took on that mothering role for both him and his twin brother, Rex, throughout their lives, really, even into adulthood. Twin brother, obviously, like I said, they complemented each other well, that they fed off of each other and really kind of inspired each other, even when they got into fights and bickered and argued. They were really kind of an ongoing love letter to one another. As far as, you know, my grandmother, Patricia, and their daughters, my mother being one of them, they were really his foundation. I mean, and that's something that I always try to emphasize when I talk about him is that my grandfather was itinerantly employed, we can call it. Um, (laughs) He was an artist. He was chasing his dream. And so money wasn't always forthcoming when he sold well he's great but the life of an artist is never really guaranteed and so there were times when his paintings weren't selling very well my grandmother took up the slack for that she was a very talented person in her own right a beautiful singing voice she worked for a historic preservation architecture firm you know was kind of bringing home the bread and butter a lot of times when he might not have been. She was there to not only help with the children, help with the finances, but she was his manager in a lot of ways when they would put on art exhibits or be in these shows or when he would try to be produce a movie or a play. She did a lot of the footwork for that. She was, you know, whether it was framing and matting paintings or setting up contract different galleries or contacting different theater houses to put on his plays. I mean, she was doing a lot of the legwork and I really can't emphasize it enough and how important she was to the success that he had. And, you know, it wasn't always roses and, you know, champagne. They, they, it was a stormy relationship. They both were very open about that. They didn't always get along. They separated several times throughout their lives, but they always gravitated towards each other in the end. And I think there's something to be said for that. She saw his talent and his vision, and I think it mattered to her. She felt that it was important that this was a person whose you know, vision and voice needed to be heard. And she dedicated a lot of her life towards making that happen. And 
vice versa. I think despite who's in the froze that they had personally, he really, he recognized that this was a person who saw him for who he was and who believed in him. And for anybody with a creative bent or anybody who's trying to do anything that's a little risky or a little hard, you can't say enough about somebody, having somebody like that in your corner, to have somebody who believes in you, and that's truly invaluable. Yeah, without her, maybe some of the beautiful artwork and writings that we have today wouldn't have happened. Absolutely. He probably wouldn't have eaten very well. (laughs) (laughs) They all would have been very thin. (laughs) Yeah, he was already very thin to begin with, so yeah, I thank thank God for her. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Well, I just wanted to ask you, how would you say your life has been impacted by knowing your grandfather? Oh gosh, innumerable ways. It's hard to put it into words, really. It's funny, when I was younger, I knew he, we all knew that he was an artist. You couldn't go anywhere in my grandparents' house without seeing his art. We would go around town with him or my grandparents, and everybody seemed to know him. And it was a little intimidating, to be you know, completely honest. When you're younger, you kind of, you know, but you don't quite understand if that makes any sense we all kind of knew that he was somebody that people respected and that it was somebody somebody that people thought were doing something important but the art world can be such an abstract con- concept to people of any age and for children he was their grandpa mm-hmm. you know he would play football with us in the backyard he he was very soft-spoken he was kind of this what i used to call spindly which he always got a kick out of he liked that word <laughs> he's spindly old man. It was hard to understand what he was saying because he was missing most of his teeth. (laughs) He hated wearing his dentures. He would put his dentures in for art shows, but he hated, you know, he didn't want to wear them when he didn't have to. And so it's kind of hard to understand him sometimes, but once you figured out his lingo and his pacing, he really kind of blew you away. But he was very understated. It wasn't until I was a little older and had, I've always been interested in writing and illustration and just I, I kind of had fun with it, but he really took me on, took me under his wing once I was about 12, 13 years old and really started to talk to me more about that and promote me and push me further, encourage me, give me books, and endless amounts of books, some of most of which I read. <laughs> give me 10 books at a time. And, you know, I'm 14 years old. I don't want to read all these books right now. Which looking back, I was like, darn, I should have read all this. <laughs> I have some of them still. Really, as I got older, just seeing the impact that he had on other people and then hearing thoughts and his ideas and him him taking an interest in me. I mean, I can't tell you how much that really it meant the world to me, really. I mean, here was this man who, I remember one time we were at a charity fundraiser. He had a couple of paintings that were up for auction that he had donated to help raise funds for the Brandywine Hemophiliac Foundation. And he donated a couple paintings to be put in the auction. And I remember walking up to him there and he was surrounded by older people, people who I didn't know, you know very well-dressed people. And I'm 14 years old, 15 years old at the time. And he was, you know, all these people wanted to talk to him. And he stopped what he was saying right in the middle of talking to him. He looked at me and he said, hey, how you doing? And, you know, came and gave me a hug and said, you want to go for a walk? And we went off for a walk down by the creek near the venue. And I was blown away that here he was with all these people around him and everybody who wanted to talk to him and talk to him about these very serious, important things. And he dropped all of that pretty much in the drop of a hat and spent the rest of the afternoon just talking to me because I think he was really interested in what I was doing and what I had to say and my thoughts on things. And that that was the key to him. And you can talk to a lot of different people who knew him and they would always say that he was authentic. What you saw was what you got with him. He didn't get caught up in fame or glory 
story. A lot of people, the kind of famous refrain I hear from people is, oh, well, he could have been way more famous than he was, but he didn't want that. It sounds like kind of a cop-out, but I truly think that was the case. He was happy with where he was. Now, everybody, you know, always hopes that they can do a little bit more, but I think he liked the, the fact that he could do things on his terms. And I think that was important to him. And that was an important lesson that he was trying to instill in me. And really everybody who looked up to him or looked at him as a mentor was just that to not compromise yourself, to not chase the money, to not chase the glory, but to to find the truth, to find what speaks to you and really make that the passion and the goal of your life and help other people to see that and illustrate that for other people, regardless of what your chosen profession or your chosen artistic profession is. Oh, that, that's such a nice story. I mean, I love the fact that he stopped what he was doing and just gave you all of himself at that time. And, and he could have very Absolutely. well, have, he could have said, well, I'll get to Max later. I just, just got to finish speaking with these people because right now this is more important but we all know that children more than anything more than gifts more than thinking how wonderful their grandparents or their parents are more than anything they want their time that obviously has stayed with you all these years and what a what a wonderful memory that is for you to have in the bank shall we say truly which leads me to my last question i want to ask you what do you think re your grandfather would want his legacy to be well that's a good question. You know, I think it's, it's kind of what we were talking about a little bit. I believe that if he had his choice, it would just to be another voice in that tapestry of, of memory and voices speaking to what forms the American experience, the American consciousness, the collective he wanted. I think if he could look back at, you know, at his work and his life and say, well, I spoke my piece as true as I could to this thing that resonated in me. And I allowed other people to have that experience that I had to see those paintings, to, to, to watch that film, to read those words and get a sense of that, to wonder, to marvel at what transpired, what was remembered, what was lost. I think that was really that would have tickled him. You know, I think that's what he was trying to capture. It's just those moments in time, whether it be abandoned field or a fox on the edge of the woods, uh, an airplane flying high in the sky. It was just how to capture these memories and you know, deconstruct them, strip them away from the mythos and the fog of sentimentality and glorification and really see them for what they were. And then how do you build those back up? Because when we strip the things away, we're not saying that those things aren't important. We're just saying, well, there's it's like an onion. You, know, you, you pull off the layers and there's just more layers. And I think he really just liked diving deep. There was just, there was some, something there. I think I have one more quote that I'd like to share sure, with you. Absolutely. That's a, also from um, his play, The Prairie, which he wrote towards the end of his life. He passed away in 2008. This is from that play. There was a time not too long ago when families gathered in their backyards on summer evenings and wove the myths of their past. They were tribal tales, raveled and unraveled from memory, composed of speculation, myth, and downright lies, tales of birth and death across the great prairie. And listening there... I could never get a grip on old cousin Wesley was in my mind. Could never seem to feel the musket in his hand or see him sweating and swearing, lice-ridden, up and down those choked roads of distant Maryland, or smell the mornings or hear the birds or taste the bitter coffee out of an old tin cup. No, he came to me like some vague ghost in a gilt frame set upon the table in the waning light of the afternoon. 
And I think really that's what he would like his legacy to be, I think, if he was here to tell his story. It's just to be another one of those, to be something that evokes imagination in the minds of the young or the minds of the old or the people who are still here to just add another voice to that tapestry, like I said. Wow, that's a beautiful story. And your grandfather died in 2008. He was about 75 years old. Yes, yes. He's 73. Oh, 73. Okay. But I do want to say, Max, as we conclude uh, this podcast, I want to thank you so much for sharing this amazing tribute to your grandfather, uh, Ree Redifer. I just think uh, you really just gave such a deep, meaningful, observant tribute to him that I'm sure that he would be very proud to hear this. And I do know that you are also a very talented writer as well, so I see where it's coming from. And I do hope that our listeners have enjoyed hearing about your grandfather's talents and creativity as much as I have. Thank you again, Max. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Terrific. And until next time, everybody, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.